And every day you you do something, you you know, you increase the pay or you change the holiday pattern or you do whatever it is you're going to do. You put pennies into the, the piggy bank and that builds up trust with the, the team that you've got. And you've got to keep putting pennies in because every time you restructure or you have to do something that's hard for the organization, you make a massive withdrawal. And he said, you only get to put in, in pennies and you only get to withdraw in hundred pounds at a time. Back to say, if we're going to have a really big impact, we've got to start looking 10, 15 years down the track. Um, and so that is a big mind shift um, to take on, but, but a really exciting one where you can see, you know, look at the Oxford vaccine. Uh, I chatted to some of the team uh, at Oxford. We do some work with them on, on mental health research. And they said it was only because of the investment 15 years previous into what they were doing that when the question was asked at a team meeting, what can we do with the pandemic? Uh, and Sarah puts her hand up and goes, yeah, I've got something that can probably work as a vaccine. If you can get me 10 million, I can do something for you by the end of the week. Purposely Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. Welcome, Lee. Hi, Mark. How are you? Yeah, look, awesome to connect after all these years. You are now Chief Executive Officer of MQ. And I'm tempted to say MQ Transforming Mental Health. So tell us yeah. about them and, and what you guys do. Yeah, we've, we've, um, we've gone a bit more Ron Seal with our name. Uh, so MQ Mental Health Research. Um, so MQ was set up uh, about 10 years ago um, as, as really the first public-facing charity uh, funding mental health research uh, and so 10 years on we've invested about 21 million pounds uh, in 40 projects around the world um, looking into into mental health mental health research is chronically underfunded so there's about nine pound uh, per every person in the UK with a mental illness being spent compared to over £300 per cancer patient being spent on research. So there's a, a huge goal for us to make up. Lack of funding is because there's a lack of confidence around um, solutions and actually you, you guys could be the absolute key to that. Yeah, I, th I think there's two factors. I think if you look at the breakthroughs that cancer research had, uh, it was when the stigma around cancer started to, to lift considerably, and that's when things really took off. Um, and, and once those initial findings started to come through and, and we could tackle cancer, again, lift off kind of happened. And mental health is sort of uh, on that same journey or trajectory, I hope and believe, but, but maybe 30 years behind that. Um, so I think it's about seeing stigma removed and, and people being more comfortable talking about mental health and mental ill health and mental disorders and, and being okay with that. Uh, and then recognizing that research has to be the first step in the solution because our, our mental health services are um, already uh, overrun in terms of the number of um, people be presenting at them. Um, and so the system isn't working. So, so research is the first step to making that better initial idea to translation to patient impact uh, can be as long as 20 years, depending on what it is you're tackling. So, so the donor, uh, the people that will support also have to recognize that there's, there's this huge journey to go on and they might be joining at a certain point on that translational journey. Um, so if you're looking for a fast return on investment, it's not research. If you're looking for a great return on investment, then it's research.
what drew you to this role and also um is, has it got particular resonance to you for for any reason yeah <clears throat> in terms of the actual sort of job M mq is a fairly young organization it's still got that entrepreneurial startup feel to it it's it's backing really edgy science and some of the stuff that's um, not been tried before and so uh, th that kind of resonates with me quite a bit um it also went through a little transition period where they had a couple of interims and and uh, was really looking to sort of re-kickstart its its fundraising its engagement with the public and 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 was up for a bit of sort of change in that sense a new chairman uh, in about 18 months or so so from that side all those bits kind of clicked and resonated with me sort of taking on a, a bit of a challenge and a team that needed sort of a bit more of a refocusing and, and driving forward um, and, and in terms of the cause i suppose throughout my career having worked sort of in alternative education in prison and and um most recently uh, having worked with a, a surgical intervention project in in west africa mental health is kind of the golden thread that's run through all of that socioeconomic background and physical health and mental health and and the impact that, that has i suppose all comes together in in mq in, in terms of a research project um so, so i suppose that's the affinity with the cause from my perspective you could choose anybody uh in the world uh, dead or alive that you could have lunch with who would that be and why uh classic question that i should have a go-to answer for isn't it really um <laughs> i mean as a as an irishman and as a rugby fan to not say brian o'driscoll uh would be a travesty so it, it would have to be a former ireland legend and and lions legend brian o'driscoll um i think for me there's he had a passion uh that went and a and a leadership quality that took his career way beyond his actual skill set he shouldn't have been as good as he is based on the level of skill i think that he had but there was something else that drove him on to be you know our most successful captain incredible in the lions he makes it into every world 15 that you can muster um over the last 20 plus years so um yeah, I, and I also think there'll be some belter stories about the Lions tour uh, that haven't been shared yet that I'd want to try and get under the skin of in here. <laughs> Things that you admire that you kind of draw on for your own personal... Yeah, so, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, my my last two roles, so this role, I uh, I helped to lead mental health research. Uh, so, so I ain't no scientist and I haven't even got a degree. My prior job, I, I managed surgical intervention in West Africa. I, I would say to, you know, Dr. Parker, uh, look, I have no idea what it is you do when you walk into that uh, that OR. Um, but what I can do is make sure that the OR is there, the patients are lined up, and that you're given everything you need to do your job well. It's the exact same here in terms of research. So, um, you know, I've worked in education, worked in justice system, et cetera. I'm not an expert in any of those things in reality. I think, yeah, what, what I bring to the table is I can get all the tools you need in place to, so that you, the expert, can just get on and do that thing that's going to transform society. So uh, I think, yeah, there's a lot of parallels that. That seems to be what Brian did. I'll make sure that the fast boys, the strong lads, the whatever it is, I'll make sure everything's in the right place for you to just get on with doing what you've got to do. And occasionally I'll pop a ball over the line myself. I think either of us really into just um, being chief executives of charities. Is there an element of like, you kind of get to the age where you realize you have to step up um, or is it you just realize you know your stuff and actually you, sh you should just kind of grow up here? And go for it. What was the <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think, um, yeah, I think that it's that it's the, for me, it's the latter. To be honest, it's it's that um, 
like I'm a fairly confident individual. I like to back myself on, on almost anything. Like people talk about being competitive and stuff like that and uh, whatever. I, I'm the guy that will um, play a game against you and lose it 10 times and say, let's play a game because I think I'm getting closer to getting a chance to winning and you're going, mate, honestly, you can't even hit the ball. What are you talking about? So, so that's kind of me in a, in, a, in a day-to-day context. And I suppose, yeah, part of becoming a CEO for me was that uh, you know, I've done a pretty good job here as a CEO a few times. A lot of people tell me I've, I'm getting it right. I can see that organization. I can see what needs to be fixed in that and, and what the Rubik's Cube needs to, what needs to happen to it. Um, yeah, give me a shot at it. And actually, it was, a, it was the board at Mercy Ships where I've just been that um, said to me in the recruitment process, you are absolutely the wild card pick out of everyone who's applied for this, we're going to back you on it. Um, to let you know that we're backing you on it, we're going to put you at the top of the pay scale we advertise, not the bottom, because we don't want you to think we're cheaping out and we don't want to undermine you. So just crack on and get on with it. And I, wow. I'd, have taken it, I'd have taken it for less than the bottom they were offering because I thought, you know, it's a chance to have a crack at it. But, yeah. but it was that kind of confidence from a chairman that, you know, kind of pushed me and, and moved from there. Doing other stuff much more closer to frontline delivery. Yeah, I, I probably... Uh, it's not that long ago that I really envisioned myself being in charge of anything, to be honest. I'd always, um, I thought I made quite a good number too. I, I, um, I think it's Simon Cernick talks about the fact that, you know, not everyone in society can be a visionary. In fact, it's only about 5%. We can all have vision and move forward, but we're not necessarily visionary. So I never really saw myself as, you know, somebody who would set something up, found something, come up with this radical new uh, thing that needs a vehicle. Um, I saw myself as being, quite good at taking someone's vision and putting it into practice and reality. So it was only um, uh, five years ago that I took my first CEO role. Um, so I suppose that was one transition. And then, yeah, the transition into a research organization, as I say, it's, it's that shift from seeing the immediacy of the impact you've got and then stepping back to say, if we're going to have a really big impact, we've got to start looking 10, 15 years down the track. Um, and so that is a big mind shift um, to take on, but, but a really exciting one where you can see, you know, look at the Oxford vaccine. Uh, I chatted to some of the team uh, at Oxford. We do some work with them on, on mental health research. And they said it was only because of the investment 15 years previous into what they were doing that when the question was asked at a team meeting, what can we do with the pandemic? Uh, and Sarah puts her hand up and goes, yeah, I've got something that can probably work as a vaccine. If you can get me 10 million, I can do something for you by the end of the week. Uh, yeah, what I mean, it's, yeah. Uh, literally, yeah. that's, that's, that's what they say happened in the leadership meeting. And they said, we'll get you to 10 million, we'll crack on. And, and so it's that investment of research that can have you know, global transformational impact. It's just to take that expertise and go, okay, I hear what the clashes are. We're going to pick this is the priority route. And I hear this and we'll, we'll adjust and navigate as we go. So, so I think that's kind of how I, I typify my my leadership style, if you like. Um, I, I had an incredible mentor early in my career who was the f- a former CEO of Royal Mail, so the postal service here in the UK. Um, so he managed, you know, multi-billion pound budgets and hum- like tens of thousands of staff. And he, he was an incredible mentor that I had for a couple of years and was really generous with his time. And one of the things he talked about was, and obviously he had big union negotiation stuff going on, and I had, you know, a team of four people at that time. Um, he used to talk about this idea of the bank of trust, the piggy bank of trust. And every day you, you do something, you, you, know, you increase the pay or you change the holiday pattern or you do whatever it is you're going to do. You're putting pennies into the, the piggy bank and that builds up trust with the, the team that you've got. And you've got to keep putting pennies in because 
every time you restructure or you have to do something that's hard for the organization, you make a massive withdrawal. And he said, you only get to put in, in pennies and you only get to withdraw in hundred pounds at a time. And, and so it's that kind of, that philosophy stuck with me for quite a few years um, and still is today. You know, your people come first, they've got to trust you because you're going to have to make a tough call one day and you need them to back you when you make those tough calls. And that's, that's what you're in the job to do. Uh, yeah, I love that too. So one statement that I've heard recently, which I've sort of drawing on, which is um, mission first, people always, because um, people yeah. are fundamental, like, you know, an idea is only a good good idea if it's delivered or actioned and, and the people fundamentally make that happen. So yeah, absolutely love that. And you you draw on that um, the, the ethos from, from that former colleague all the time. Yeah, mass- massively. And, mm. I, and I think there's something in, um, I had a CEO who said to me that um, a, a great idea only takes two people. It takes one person to have it and one person to go, yeah, sure, I'll we'll, I'll try it with you. And, and I kind of see my job as a CEO as not necessarily being the one that goes, here's what we're going to do, who's going to back me, but actually listen to my team who go, I think we should do this. And me going, okay, I'll back you. Let's work out how we get that to work because that sounds great to me. So yeah. it's it's um, it, for me, it's a bit of a reverse um, in terms of how you try and focus your time. So I agree completely. It's people always. And I think a crucial thing about nonprofit and I think about being a chief executive of a um, of a charity is that relationship with the board. Um, so so whether your board are a sort of um, blend of um, governance and executive or whether they're just purely sitting in that executive space um, you know like it's it's quite a tricky relationship and I think that's a huge part of being a chief executive um, have you how have you found your relationship with your boards because you know that at the end of the day they're volunteers right um, yeah, and- yeah. <laughs> Yeah, really, really highly qualified, overly qualified volunteers who who also have massive day jobs in their own right. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a great show. I, I, I talk about the idea that in the charity sector as CEO, I think you need to spend your time in three chunks, a third, a third, a third. Uh, a third of it is external, a third of it is internal operationally, and a third of it is working with the governance, working with your board um, to move stuff forward. And, and I think to some people, who aren't used to that model looking in that like the question might be but hold on a minute isn't that just self self-serving you're literally spending time on governance for the sake of the governance is that what it is but actually you're i've found if you get the right board in place with those high quality people they give you incredible advice they're strategically minded they help you make those massive big calls and they leverage so much more for the organization if you have a, a board where you know I like to talk about when we're doing board recruitment, let's not go out and interview five candidates and really grill them to see who should join. We should be out pitching to get people to join our board who want to leverage for us and, and work alongside us and, and be part of what we're doing. And so that's that's how I've seen it work the best. And I've been really fortunate. I think the, the absolute key is the relationship between the chair and the CEO. If that bit breaks down, and I've seen it break down in other organizations, the whole thing falls apart. So I've been really fortunate that my the two the two chairs I've worked for um, who are both wildly different by the way in their style, um, but I've worked I've worked really well with them and got on with them and we've had a really good relationship and an honest relationship and I've learned a lot from both of them. Yeah, wonderful. Um, MQ was that a big decision? Yeah, it was, it was massive actually. Um, four, four years at Mercy Ships, um, it had been sort of you know in thirty percent per annum decline uh, for about four years when I joined it. Um, you know, it wasn't in dire straits, but it was looking uh, like medium term, big issues. Um, 
So to, to pull that around and to to grow the thing to be pushing ten million um, from four in four years to build a team basically from scratch and a team that you know I, I loved and really enjoyed working with um, was a massive wrench. But I equally got to the end of four years and came back to the board and said, look. We've hit all the goals that we said we wanted to hit in that period. Um, we've secured our first ever funding from government, and that's going to run now for three, four years. Um, we've hit that 10 million mark. We don't need to grow any bigger than that because that was the nature of the organization. It couldn't, like you could give it another 10 million, it couldn't deliver any more with it because it was at that kind of point. Um, so I said, look, to be really honest, I'm doing my job in like three days a week. This team can handle it without me. The succession plan's there, and actually my deputy CEO is now the CEO. So it was really hard in one sense. I love the team, but uh, you know, I, I had to keep pushing myself and and look at yeah. beyond that. And so in that sense, it was it was a fairly easy choice. Whereabouts are you living? And um, you know, what what is it like being a leader during COVID times? Yeah, so I uh, live out in um, the border of Bedfordshire, Hertfordshire, so about thirty minutes outside of London. Um, six and a four year old uh, who desperately hated been at school during the lockdown i clearly just don't call it as an educationalist uh, day to day for them um and to be honest it was probably more home entertainment than home education in my house at that age um yeah it, it, the pandemic has been a you know a stress for everybody in in many ways you know and that having to juggle balance and home life and having everything on top of you constantly um is a real challenge you know and for me um you know i were chatting earlier the fact that there's no fans in a sport anymore. The stuff that you used to get a release from just is a little bit of a, a poor imitation of what it used to be. It's a real challenge. And so um, I suppose what I tried to do, I, I led the merchants team into lockdown, knew everybody, knew them well. It was kind of quite easy for us to, to do that. Joining a team in the lockdown and not having met anyone in the organization, um, even today, uh, is a real challenge as well. So it's I suppose it's just taking all those extra, taking all those elements of being a CEO and then just chucking a few extra challenges on top of it and seeing how you handle it. For me, that's, that's kind of how I've tried to view it and just tick them off one at a time. So you, did you interview for this role in lockdown or had you, you did it in person? Yeah. Yeah. No, I interviewed. I actually was scheduled to do the very first interview for this job in person and the lockdown came about a week later but our i was self i was self-isolating because we'd had a case in the office um so i locked on about 10 days two weeks before the rest of the country so yeah Yeah. i didn't meet the recruiters face-to-face didn't meet the board face-to-face um there was a point i think the chairman of the process said there's no way we can appoint without meeting someone face-to-face and as the reality of uh, the pandemic continued they went we've got no choice we're gonna have to so let's get on with it yeah it was surreal it really was odd One of the big areas that we've kind of invested into is is what we refer to as data science. So the the biggest challenge in mental health research is a lack of good quality data. And you actually spend, uh, you know, if you've got a three to four year research project, you'll spend the first two years just trying to set up uh, data structures and architecture to bring in the information you need to then move your thing forward. And uh, to, to make it worthwhile, you need big data sets and you need big groups of people to sign up to that. So we invested... Um, prior prior to my time um, into a project called the Adolescent Data Platform, which is based out of Swansea. And what it tried to do was uh, connect all of the regularly collected data points in society into one space. So 
taking GP records, taking education records, taking judiciary records, taking um, everything that government has in all these different spaces or in individuals and uniting them around, uh, you know, literally down to a person-centered um, level so you can have all that data. And that project comes to a conclusion at the end of this year and has been a huge success. Um, it's, so it's now got every child and young person in the whole of Wales, all of their data aggregated into one spot. So we're, we're looking to continue to support that project over the next three years because they're now in a position where if you want to run a, a project on children and young people's mental health, you now have the world's largest data set of regularly collected information. So you're not having to worry about um, uh, going out and finding it all. You, you start from there um, and their, their model that they've built has um, a self-sustainability built, built in bit. You, you pay that um uh, that platform for all the analysis you need to pull out the information you need to then move your research on to the next step it also means that there's a huge challenge in underrepresentation and research of people from um, minority ethnic groups and um, particularly i mean black women are almost invisible in research studies because they're they're just not signing up to join them and and so what the adolescent data platform also allows is you to literally hone in on, okay, I want to look at uh, the traveler community. Let's pull all the data we have out in that subset and start the project immediately, as opposed to going out and trying to find all that information. Yeah, yeah. So, so really investing in that architecture and, and tech behind the, the, the research is, has paid dividends and it's something we want to continue to, to set up forward on. So that was a unique project that, that we launched about three years ago. What's your vision for the organization in the future? Yeah, so um, we're uh, as as a young research organisation, we um, we eat what we catch. So, you know, so we've got great plans for what we want to deliver, but we've got to raise the cash to to deliver that. And 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 research, you know, isn't a, a small ticket item. So the big focus on making sure our fundraising mechanisms are right there. Um, we've launched our UK, uh, sorry, our New York office um, about eighteen months ago, and that's. Uh, starting to really tick and hum quite nicely now. So we generated about half a million dollars last year um, out of the US uh, and we're looking to double that year on year for the next three or four years and we're putting in uh, a bigger team there. Um, out of the UK, we're generated about three million of new money last year um, and spent about three or four million on other research projects that we'd already had um, on the slate, if you like. So there's ambition to continue to grow that. We've really spent our time honing what we think the three big areas of research we need to get into for mental health are. I mean, the, the, the mental health space is so vast and so wide. So uh, the theme that we're focused on this year is called thriving in a post-pandemic world. So really focusing on children and young people's mental health and workplace mental health. Um, how do we try and tackle those two issues from a research perspective? And then next year, we launch um, our, our new theme that will run in parallel called Gone Too Soon, uh, which looks at um, how do we uh, how do we reduce the mortality gap for those that die by suicide and also the fact that um, those with mental illness uh, at a societal level die 15 years earlier than their mentally healthy counterparts because of the relationship of physical and mental health. Um, so a, a program all around that. And our third project we look to start about two to three years time is called Out of the Shadows. So looking at radical solutions to depression, which by 2030 is, is on track to be the biggest burden of disease globally. Thanks for putting some time aside tonight and uh, for talking. Definitely. Cheers, mate. Really appreciate it. And I think uh, it's, uh, it's been great to connect after such a gap. Let's, let's keep the gaps a lot smaller because it's been a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. I hope you like what you're hearing. 
Please subscribe and leave a review.